The spring classics are back, and Flow Bikes has you covered. Watch Omloop at Newsblad, Genwevelgem, the Tour of Flanders, Amstel Gold, and more live and on demand in the United States, Canada, and Australia. Plus, go inside the race with athlete interviews, in-depth course previews, expert analysis, and other exclusive content the cobbles are calling, so don't miss out. Subscribe now at flowbikes.com forward slash velonews. That's F-L-O bikes.com forward slash velonews. And when you purchase a Flow Bike subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports Network of over 25 sports. Omloop Het Newsblad is this weekend. If you want to watch it, you have to sign up at flowbikes.com forward slash velonews. That's F-L-O bikes.com forward slash velonews. Thanks to Flow Bikes for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on with the show. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a gorgeous day here at the home offices uh, in uh, outside of Boulder, Colorado. Uh, the family, the Dreyer family is out right now, so I don't think we're going to have any uh, crying babies interrupt the podcast like we did uh, last week. Again, we're, we're podcasting during a pandemic, folks. We have to be a little flexible. We have a great show going uh, coming up today. We're going to get to all the action from that little race that happened this past weekend in France, the Tour des Alpes Maritimes et du Var. We have James Start on the line, who was there. Uh, we also have Andrew Hood on the line, and we're going to talk all about UAE Tour, some of the big stages that have happened there. Uh, we've had a time trial, a summit finish, and some really cool echelons. Uh, and then second half of the show, we're catching up with Keel Rain. And Keel is over at UAE Tour. 2019, I was at UAE Tour and just loved catching up with Keel every morning to laugh about the ridiculousness of the race. Everything from the theme song to the fact that we'd start in these big giant shopping malls or like F1 tracks that had no one at it and the whole thing didn't make any sense. So uh, we have Keel on the podcast today. Um, before we get to all of that, though, we have some big news in the Velo News world, and that is that our parent company, Pocket Outdoor Media, has bought Outside Magazine, Outside TV, Peloton Magazine, Gaia GPS, and AthleteReg.com. And you can bet that this is going to add substantial cool stuff to the Active Pass membership. You've heard me talk about Active Pass on the podcast. And we're so psyched to be able to bring these publications into the Pocket Outdoor Media family, but also what it means for all of our Active Pass subscribers. You know, you can get the entire library of Warren Miller films, and there's going to be outside magazine stuff and Peloton. And, you know, we're going to be figuring that out in the next days and weeks, but we're just really psyched that this all came together. And uh, the other big news is that Pocket Outdoor Media, the parent company, is being rebranded as Outside. So we are all part of the, the Outside Magazine family. It's big stuff in our little corner of the uh, media space. Um, okay, let's get to the conversation of the week here. Uh, James Start and Andrew Hood are on the line. James, I'm going to start with you. We need to talk about this race in France. When I read it, I can't help but butcher the name, and so I need you to give me some proper pronunciation. It is not the Tour Alps Maritimes at Duvar. I, I'm assuming that's not it. Let, let's get some some great French pronunciation here. Oh, you're close, Fred. You're close. You just need to um need to hold your uh, your nose with a clothespin, and then you say something more like the Tour des Alpes Maritimes et Duvar. And then it kind of, you know, has a little ring to it, but it doesn't make it any more memorable because it's so long and convoluted that who can remember that? I have to say, like, I had to be there for three days before I kind of got it in my head. Uh, it used to be much easier. It used to be the Tour de Haute-Val, and it used to be 
just in a sort of neighboring department, which is called Lavar. But now the newspaper Nice Matin bought it. And, and so they're focusing the shift more around the, the Zapmaritim area and a little bit of the VAR. And that's why you get this convoluted name. Name aside, it's the first time I've done the race in at least 20 years. I'm not sure if I've ever done the race, but I was, it's a really great race. I and mean, all these races down here in, in February have been so great. Um, it's well the best search I hadn't done in years and was glad, glad to get back. Tour de la Provence, I've, you know, I've written about for so long. I just love that race. Um, and now, the uh, you know, the Alpe Maritime du Va, uh, another just stellar race. Um, and next week, Ardèche, uh, if you're not at the uh, opening week in Belgium, you're going to be doing the Ardèche and Drum Classic, which I've done every year for the last five, six years. Another great race. So all these little French races have gotten, you know, be, almost been elevated to world tour status because of the pandemic. And not only do you have beautiful racing, you have great racing with great teams and really aggressive riding. You got some big names there. Um, you know, on the attack, testing your form at Provence, it was Philippe. here. I mean, Trek was, you know, all over this race with, uh, Molema winning a race, um, uh, the opening stage. And then, um, and then Brambilla, uh, coming up the final, the victory, Israel cycling, you know, bringing out a whole new crew or, well, not a whole new crew, but, you know, they got Seth Van Mark, uh, and then obviously Michael Woods and, you know, they won stage two and almost won the race, uh, showing that they're like, they've upped their game a lot. Just tremendous racing, attacking all the time, hard racing, beautiful racing. Yeah, it looked like a really challenging course. I mean, what can you say about this? So this is the region in France around like Nice and Monaco. I mean, the the this is the um, Mediterranean coast. I mean, what can you say about these Al- the Maritime Alps down there? We had a couple stages of the Tour de France down there last year. I mean, are they are they climbs long? Are they steep? Or like, how is this compared to the climbing and the terrain that these guys are going to see later at like the Dauphiné and the Tour? Well, I can tell you, for me, they're brutal. I think actually, to be honest with you, the last time I got car sick was like following one of these races. I mean, it's just up and down, up and down. To be so, just to give you an idea. Uh, the, the, the road started climbing almost from kilometer zero on stage three, and the attacks were going all the time. Uh, Joe Dombrowski was in the mix for a while, and then uh, Rudy Moulin put in a, you know, just a bomb of an attack, and that blew up the race. And and we were on this climb, and it had been going on for a couple kilometers. And I looked down, and I was like, what climb is this? And there was no climb on the profile. We hadn't yet come to the first climb. Um, so it is just, I mean, unless you're on the promenade des Anglais in downtown Nice, there is no flat terrain. Uh, it's just up and down and real leg breakers. You know, we finished on the Col de la Madone, you know, that, uh, you know, a lot of riders, Lance and other riders have used as a, as a sort of gauge for their Tour de France form. So plenty hard, uh, climbing and, and certainly a good test in the early season. Is it the high Alps? No. Uh, the climbs aren't that long. Uh, but plenty hard. So, Andrew, we had a number of storylines come out of this. I mean, everything from, like James said, you know, the aggression of Trek Segafredo, stage win of Balka Molema, and uh, Mike Woods taking a stage, and Israel, you know, having its first success of the year. When you think to the big storyline that came out of this weekend of racing, what what's the story or the uh, rider that you hone in on? What was sort of the, the head-scratcher, or not head-scratcher, but the, like, eye-opening moment from this uh, race in France. Yeah, I'm going to look to what Michael Woods was able to pull off with the stage win. A uh, little bit of a hiccup there on, on the final stage with Trek Segafredo coming over the top and, and kind of snatching away the GC with Rambila. You know, the team was going well. Trek was going well, obviously, with uh, Molema there as well. Uh, just looking at some quotes from Mike Woods after the race. 
saying that there were some mechanicals with uh, Dan Martin and another Israel writer. It kind of left him isolated. That's why we saw him isolated in that chase, really the last, uh, you know, the last uh, of that last climb and going into the finish, where uh, you know the gaps were just down to seconds. Um, and, and Woods was doing all the chasing by himself. He didn't have any teammates, and everyone else was just riding his wheel. Um, so you know, Michael Woods was saying he felt like he was the strongest in the race, but sometimes the strongest in the race obviously doesn't win all the time. But huge takeaway for for him, you know, just, just seeing that. You know, he's pivoting to more of a leadership role at that team. The team is going to be backing him in the big races. And he's going to have, you know, really a dream scenario for him to kind of come of age, even though, you know, he did come to the sport quite late. You know, he's in his early 30s now, but he's going to be a leader on this team. You know, initially I was kind of wondering, it's like, man, if they can't win the hard bar, you know, how are they going to win the Tour de France with Chris Froome? Um, but uh, l- learning more about uh, some of the, the problems some of his teammates might have had, you know, you can't draw too many conclusions about what happened in this kind of week, you know, weekend long race. James, what, what conclusions can we draw then about Trek Segafredo? I, th- that's one of the stories that has popped out to me is like Trek, you know, it's this team that's tried to target Grand Tours and tried to target Classics. And in doing so, has been kind of like a little bit better than average at, at both of them. And I was really impressed with the aggressive ri- racing tactics of, of Trek this early in the season. I mean, James, you were there. Like, what can you say about that stage three and Brambila and the attack and sort of the dynamics that led to this victory? What did you see from Trek? Well, uh, it's a really good question. And I'm, I totally agree with you. Trek is actually one of my favorite teams because they're not just all about one rider. They Like everybody from Ciccone to Brambilla to Bauke to, to, to Nibili, uh there's so many good riders. Uh that all have their chance, uh, and and that's what they've been using. Actually, what I would like to say about Trek is they've been on fire since the beginning of the season. At Etoile de Bessege, they were good, uh, and Nivoli was there, and Molimo was there, and they were riding aggressively. Um, they came here, they came here to to to, to win. I was talking with um, uh, my friend Paolo Bavieri, the press officer, was like, "We got a lot of good riders going really well right now," and they showed it. They just played with numbers. Um, you know, they, they showed it on the first stage with Balke, uh, you know, just taking everybody, uh, not by surprise, but he just went a little bit earlier and, and maintained it on that first uphill finish, came a little bit short on the second one. And that was, uh, you know, Woods played it just perfectly. And then, um, and then they just, you know, you sort of use the power of numbers. I mean, such smart racing. I mean, Francaise de Jeu FTG really wanted that. They had three guys in the break, three guys in the break with Valentin Madwas being their, 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 their star rider. And he's, he's an up and coming rider, very good rider. And he was in the final and Brambia was just sort of sitting there taking, you know, minimum pulls, just playing it cool, staying out of sight. And then he went on, you know, he launched that attack at the end and Valentine could not go with him. He went with him for a while and then cramped up, I believe. And when I passed him, he was just furious. He was almost in tears. He was like picking his bike up and throwing it down. He was just like, yeah, he, he knew he had missed a golden opportunity. And Berbia just kept his cool and just kept driving it and came away not only with the stage win, but with the overall win. Tremendous team ride by Trek in this race and representative of the way they've been racing all year long. How does a team like that then build on something like this? I mean, you know, we have um, the big week-long stage races coming up with um, Perinice and with Torino Adriatico. I mean, a, a team like Trek that has had, that had this early taste of success and has guys going well, I mean – do we pencil them in as favorites or aggressors or do they, do we, you know, 
say, ah, they're probably going to cool their jets, you know, for classics and uh, Jared Italia. What do you expect to see from them in the coming weeks? I expect to see a lot of the same, very opportunistic racing, uh, very aggressive racing with a lot of different guys that can make it in the breaks. Perry Nice can be a strategic race. It can be a race that uh, can be won on the flats with, the, you know, the peloton often breaks up in the first couple of days. And if you don't make that first split, you're a minute, two minutes down. So they could put, and they got guys that can, can you know, can ride in the wind. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I expect them to be there and they've got, they're just one of those teams. They could come away with a, a win in a race like Perry Nice. I don't, they're not favored to win, but they could because they've got uh, several different cards to play. So that's the way I see them taking the racing right now. And it's pretty exciting. I love that kind of racing. Last question for you, James. I mean, this was also the, um, 2021 racing start for Teo Gagan Hart. This is the second race for Garen Thomas. What did you see out of the Ineos team there? I mean, they have some of their real big heavy hitters, you know, starting their season or, you know, kind of building into their season. What were you seeing from those guys and that team and the way it rode this race? Well, it's just, uh, yeah, another, another good question. I've, you know, I've seen a lot of Sky lately because they were at 12 de Bessege with, with Thomas and Bernal. And then Bernal went on and did Provence. Uh, and they won Provence. So, I mean, obviously they're going, they've got, got so many options. It's not even funny. Um, and, uh, I talked with Teo, um, a little bit, uh, during the race, talked to him on the last day. I'm going to do a story by Thursday. Um, you know, I, I really like this kid. I've known him since Fort Lavenier. He just, you know, he's a grand tour winner and yet he's still just like, a, just a regular guy. And he like, so proud to get back home this winter and spend some time with friends. Um, get, getting back to Europe was not easy. He told, he told me at the, at the start of stage three, he's had 60 PCR tests. And that's just crazy. But, um, you know, and he was expecting to go a little bit better because um, he said, you know, um, this is terrain that's suited for him. So, but, you know, and then he did great on the last day getting to that break and finishing second overall. I mean, he's right there. Thomas, I saw taking some digs. Uh, his weight's really good um, for early season. You know, he can he can, he can can put it on a little bit in the, uh, in the winter, and his weight's rarely been this good going into the season. Uh, so he's going to come around. Uh, Bernal is obviously, you know, uh, good. It could, you know, probably could have won on the Montfond too. Uh, and, but, you know, let Sosa go, go, go off and they finished one at first and second. So, you know, I mean, Enios continues to be just a powerhouse team. And now that, that they're not the overwhelming favorites, it's even more exciting as I believe Andy, uh, you wrote a story about Brailsford's new approach to racing. Uh, and if they, you know, I remember talking with Andy Hampson a couple of years ago, and he's just like, man, like, when, when you have a team with that much power, it's such a shame to ride defensively like they used to do. And if Brailsford's words are, were correct after the jury, where he says, we're done with that kind of racing, we're, the attacking's where it's at. If he uses all of that potential to go out on the attack with all of the guys he's got, he can turn a lot of races upside down. It's gonna, that could be some really exciting bike racing. So I really hope that he he's good for his word on that. The temptation is going to be if, if say, in the tour, you get a guy like Darren Thomas who takes the yellow jersey in a time trial, then what are you going to do? Are you going to go back to defensive racing? I don't know, Hoodie. What do you think? I mean, uh, you were the one that wrote that story. I think that's been the big question that we're looking for in the early season as we lead up to the Giro especially is like, uh, you know, with Bernal racing the Giro, is this going to be the Team Sky of old, or is this going to be the new, reformed, aggressive, attacking Ineos Grenadiers? Yeah, I think that it's it's actually a reflection of kind of the, how the peloton is racing. One, uh, it's you know across all races, like James was just saying, every team is kind of uh, turning the tactics upside down. It's aggressive. It's attacking. 
you know, it was an interesting conversation I had the other day with uh, the CEO of Flanders Classics who said that what makes racing so exciting these days is that the young riders are not afraid to lose, that they'll risk some crazy move that might backfire, that might blow up, it might be over the top, but it might work as well. So there's a whole different kind of mindset among the Peloton in general, and you're seeing the way the training is changing, the way the tactics are changing. So I think Brailsford wants to kind of stay up with the times. And I think the second part of that equation is, you know, you had Chris Froome there uh, for so long on uh, Sky Enios that it kind of made sense to kind of ride that defensive uh, Fortress Froome tactic where you just kind of snowplow the field and then Froome had the legs to finish off the job in the mountains and in the time trials. So I think right now, Brailsford doesn't have that kind of rider. You know, uh, Bernal, you know, in his prime, you know, when he's healthy, he can finish the climbs, but he's not a great time trialist. And Garen Thomas, you know, pretty good time trialist, maybe not the best in the mountains on, on his best day. So I think he's having to adapt in terms of the cards he has to play right now. And plus, I think the ace in the hole for Brailsford is Carapaz. I'm convinced that they're going to just like uncork Carapaz let him race the way he likes to race, the way he won the uh, Giro a couple of years ago, and the way he raced last year at the Vuelta España. Remember, he almost won on that last summit finish. Had that summit finish been another K or two longer, you know, uh, Ineos would have won two of three Grand Tours last year. They, they have so many cars to play, it's not even funny. I mean, and, you know, you came up with Carapaz is great, but, you know, Adam Yates, or Richard Porte, I believe, right? I mean, how many potential Grand Tour winners do they have on that team? And it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see who does what and and what roles they have and uh, you know but they 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 have the power of numbers that's for sure. Yeah, it's really an embarrassment of riches over there, and I think that um, you know conventional thinking is that well they're just going to amass all these guys to outmuscle Yumbo Visma. You know, Yumbo had the big crusher team last year, so what Brailsford is doing is just building an even bigger fortress to outmuscle them. But we could be wrong. I mean, they could be looking at a hyper-aggressive attacking style. You know, Rowan Dennis is going to be on the team, Richie Port, um, Carapaz. So, I, you know, I, the more and more I think about it and what they're trying to do at the Tour de France, the more and more I'm uh, really interested to see how that plays out in these early season races because my guess is that these are going to be um, the dress – rehearsal uh guys let's talk uae tour real quick um you know uae tour the stage three summit finish just finished up about a, a couple hours ago we're recording this on tuesday this was the summit finish to jebel hafit big mountain in the middle of the desert i've been on top of it um it is um it's it's kind of a bleak place to be uh tade pogachar won the stage he's in the lead um adam yates of Ineos grenadiers was attacking trying to drop tade could not but I think some of the f interesting storylines were playing out um, further down the road. Um, first of all, that, uh, you know, we saw Chris Froome. He held on to the main group for the first couple Ks. I think he was dislodged, about 6.5 six Ks to go. Um, it wasn't it wasn't great, but like Valverde was dropped before him. There were some other GC climber tops who got dropped before Chris Froome. But Chris Froome did not really make it to even the point where the, the big fireworks were going down. He didn't have that great of an individual time trial either. I mean, Andrew Hood, as you look at UAE tour, Chris Froome and his comeback, like what is your uh, knee jerk analysis slash hot takes about where Chris Froome is right now? Indeed, that is the big question. Uh, Froome, you know, in a, a very short time trial, I think it was uh, 13 Ks, you know, lost a minute to Tade Pogacar. Uh, and then you said on the, in the summit finish, Stage three, got popped about six, six and a half Ks to go. 
you know, got blown out in the echelons in this first uh, road stage. Uh, so, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, he's easing into it. New team, new bike, first race of the season, coming off a big training block when he was out in California there with, uh, you know, with some friends riding all winter. You know, he's saying, oh, yeah, I'm recovered. I'm feeling great. But sooner or later, he's got to be able to prove that in a race. I mean, okay, maybe it's too early to draw too many conclusions here at the UAE Tour. But at the same time, uh, you know, he has not been able to stay with the favorites or be anywhere close to the front of the race since before his crash. So at a certain point, he's going to have to stand up and deliver. And, okay, there's still plenty of time. We're in February. The, the, the Tour is not till July. But I think sometime between now and the Dauphiné, you know, if you're not seeing Chris Froome at the pointy end of any sort of decisive moment of any race, you know, I don't think it's going to happen. But again, there's plenty of time for the tour. But I don't know. I, I would be if, you know, maybe he's playing a really good game of poker here and just, you know, not wanting to go too deep, not wanting to cause any problems. But at a certain point, it's like, man, he's got to step up. Well, if anybody knows how to do it, I think it would be Chris. I was talking with a couple of guys at Israel cycling and they very much believe in him. You know, I mean, Sylvan Adams is not going to spend that kind of money. If he didn't believe in him. And I was talking to one of the uh, uh, DSs and he said, you know, Chris has had really good uh, numbers in California and and he's got about 90 percent of the power of his leg back, which is a lot more than he had a year ago. Um, but that still means he's got 10 percent less power in one leg than he used to. And in this sport, that's a lot. Um, but he is in a better place, apparently, according to the team than he was a few months ago. Uh, so we'll see, you know, but they were very much behind him. And they said, you know, uh, uh um, uh, Michael Wood said, you know, it's when we hit, when we hit the tour, it's all in for Chris. Yeah, I think it's interesting to look from a historical perspective at how Froome has done in, you know, the first race of the season, second race, you know, sort of these January, February, early March races. And I mean, during his era of dominance, when he was winning the tour every year, he was doing really well in these early season races, winning Harold Sun Tour, top 10 at Catalonia, you know, always kind of in the mix. Um, the year when it really fell off actually was 2019. In 2018, he's top 10 at Ruta del Sol, top 11 at uh, Tirreno, you know, maybe not winning the races, but always kind of in the mix and in the mix in the decisive stages. And and the year that really fell off was 2019 at Columbia 2.1, Catalonia, Tour of the Alps, where he was kind of building into it, 11th place Tour of the Alps, but really nowhere near the front of the race in those first two events. So, uh, you know, there is something of a historical precedent in his early season results going you know getting worse as he's gotten older but yeah Woody, i'm with you i mean the the alarm bell for me was him getting blown out in the in the crosswinds um and then yeah a minute in a 13k time trial i mean it's not a very long time trial it's one thing okay summit finish early this early season you're still building in a form i mean we see nibli valverde we see bona fide grand tour gc guys struggle on in early season summit finishes but some of that sort of basic blocking and tackling stuff uh, when that's not getting executed, that's where the question marks uh, start arising. But hey, again, it's early. He's in this comeback. He's been focusing and working on all of these stabilizer muscles and this recovery. So the high end racing power um, might just not be there. Um, Hoodie, I wanted to talk to you about a couple other storylines coming out of UAE Tour. The first is that, um, you know, Matthew Vanderpool wins the opening stage after <laughs> publicly saying he's there to, you know, work for his teammate Jasper Phillips and makes this. Um, this this beautiful uh, echelon stage where there's a crosswind and de Kunic is guttering it and it just looks so beautiful 
overhead with the the echelons spread out across the road and you can just imagine the suffering that the riders are doing Vanderpool wins he's on form he's strong and then uh, his team has to leave the race the very next day because there is a COVID positive with one of the staffers um, and now it looks like that may open the door for him to race Omloop at Newsblad, which he was not originally going to do you know take us inside this story you know, is he going to be able to race Omelette Newsblad? What are the hurdles still in his way? And like, how do you think this whole um, ordeal may impact his classics campaign? Yeah, it, it was. It's a. It's kind of an interesting opportunity, perhaps, for Vanderpool to race Omloop on Saturday. Um, yeah, the timeline basically was. Uh, you're right. Uh, Vanderpool won out of this breakaway on the Sunday. That evening, uh, the staffer returned a positive test. Then, uh, like. The whole team left the race. They left the race. They stayed in uh, Emirates. They left, you know, the, the race entourage, and then they did uh, contact tracing. All this protocol that's been mapped out by the UCI, by the health authorities. They did contact tracing with the entire staff, and they determined that uh, Vanderpool and three or four of the riders and some other staffers were not in contact with the staffer that tested positive for COVID. So those people were all tested again. PCR tests cleared those tests. Were given the green light to leave UAE. That was overnight, so they landed back in Europe. It would be on Tuesday morning time. Uh, so according to the UCI rules, I was talking to some folks at Flanders Classics today, the organizers of Omloop, and they said the possibility of uh, Vanderpool being able to race Omloop still exists. UCI has a protocol. He's already cleared one test, and he, based on what he did in the UAE, that will apply going forward. He needs to clear one more test by Wednesday. If he's negative there, then he has to clear another test by Belgian protocol because he's a Dutch rider. So I have to clear another PCR test to go into Belgium. And then if he clears that, he'll have to do another pre-race screening, which the Flanders Classics people are organizing the day before Omelette, which was on Friday. So between now and Friday, you have to clear three more PCR tests. And then, of course, make the decision if he wants to do it or not, because you can imagine bit of trauma, perhaps, some nerves, uh, you know, the long distance travel, all that kind of stuff might say, might lead him to think, well, you know, maybe I don't want to race. Knowing Vanderpool, my guess is if he can race, he will. And to answer your question, how will it affect the spring classics? You know, he was, he went to uh, UAE to get in a week's training and a week's racing, I should say, because, you know, he's coming off of the cyclocross season. So he's skipping kind of these two intense days at Kern, Brussels, Kern and Omloop that opens up the calendar in, in Belgium. Skip those to get that hard week of racing in in the UAE tour. So, you know, maybe the chance to race Omloop because the next big date is Strade Bianchi, which is we're all looking forward to that. It's it's Wout versus Matteo again on Strade Bianchi. That's the big date for really inside the Peloton. That's the first big European World Tour one day race. So, yeah, I mean. Everyone, everyone inside the own loop organization is certainly hoping Mateo will race on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, I know I am. I, I think that the questions that I have are about, you know, if losing out on seven full days of racing in the gusting winds and the power and that, you know, if, if that impacts his buildup at all for spring classics. It may, it may not. Um, but, uh, boy, I'd love to see him. Uh, racing at Omloop News, but I'm, the listeners will probably have the answer to that by the time this podcast publishes um, on Wednesday. But still, it's a really interesting story. And yeah, there could be implications for what it means for uh, Vanderpool as he goes into the classics. Um, another interesting story I thought of UAE Tour coming out of the summit finish today was that uh, Sepkus, our uh, countryman, was r- went right up there in the front group. 
Um, throwing some haymakers at uh, Pogachar and Yates, couldn't hold the pace, went back to the second group, but then was uh, it seemed like he was held back by Yumbo Visma to work for Chris Harper, who's a rider I am not familiar with, to help tow him up to the line. I thought it was a little curious tactics on the end of Yumbo Visma. I'm, I didn't know why they like didn't just let Sep ride. Um, Hoodie, what was your analysis of what was going on there? And, and do you have any hot takes on whether or not we need to hashtag free Sep? We need to. We need to get the free Sep hashtag going. Yeah, I mean, you know, came into this season, Sep talking about having some leadership opportunities at Yumbo Visma. But, of course, based on the time trial Tuesday, Chris Harper was the better positioned uh, rider on GC. And, you know, Sepp, as always, looks to have the legs. And he was, you know, he was the one that really opened up that aggression that kind of drew out uh, the, the GC favorites there, drew out Pogachar and drew out uh, Adam Yates. And then suddenly he, you know, he kind of looked like a pop, but then it became quite apparent that he was sitting up to help uh, Chris Harper, who was in that chase group with uh, Almeida and some other folks were in that chase group. So he jumped in there and helped pull those guys across. So, yeah, at the end of the day, Harper still is fourth overall. Uh, you know, part of me says, you know, that's that shows the importance of these UCI points, like the teams want the UCI points because it can be sometimes for such mundane things as car position in the race. You know, it's like they want to be at the front of the race. So you got to have the points. You get the points. You're going to be at the front of the peloton in the next race you start in the world tour. And it all kind of adds up. And but it kind of shows, you know, it's like uh, you're a team player and maybe, you know, Sep. You know, would he be fast enough to beat a guy like Pogachar and Yates at the finish line? Or maybe he could have had the legs to drop those guys. But he, to me, it looked like he got called out of that group. And we'll have to just wait to see if Sepp gets his chance to be a leader. We love Sepp Kuss, friend of the podcast. Before we get out of here, we have some big races coming up this week. Uh, James, you are heading back down to southern France for the Drome Classic and Ardèche Classic you gave us a little taste of those last time on the you were on the pod talking about you know these hilly courses, really tough routes, um, finisher you know f- groups of ones and twos and threes and fours finishing these races. When you look at the starting line and see who's going well, I mean, who are some of the riders that you're going to have your eyes on uh, at these at these two races? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's I'm not quite sure to be honest with you who exactly is going to show up. I think some of these things uh, can change, but. Uh... You know, the French, this, these are very important races for the French teams because, you know, they don't, they don't, a lot of them, you know, their best riders are not going to be at the opening weekend. Uh, but you got, just got to look for like, you know, the punchy, the punchy climbers, uh, you know, the guys that were in these, these past races. Um, I think Mulham has been there. If he's there, he's been at two races already. So I don't know. Um, I'll be curious to see, um, what other world tour teams they, they, they bring, but it's just, it's, it's 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 never the same guys, never the same faces, but it's it's always great racing. So it'll be curious, and then and then obviously we're all going to have our eyes on 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 Newsblad stuff. And there's I mean, Vanderpool, no Vanderpool. There's so many so many interesting people to see. I mean, Philippe, I mean, he's been flying. What's he going to do? He's going to be there testing out his legs for Flanders. I mean, this guy, this is another guy who can win just so many races. It's not even funny. And and he's you know he's going to have quick step behind him. That's going to be curious. I've been watching, you know, like Greg Van Avermaet and AG2R, they've been riding really well as, as a team. They're going to be up there. Uh, and there's their team that has, you know, they have numbers. I'm, there's so many, so many stories that are going to be coming out of this weekend. It's not even funny. So, um, I'm not going to be making any predictions, but I'm sure going to be watching it all real close. Hoodie, you going to make a prediction for, uh, Newsblood? Uh, Vanderpool's there. I see him winning. Uh, for Kerna, I see maybe, uh, uh, Oliver Nason can maybe get that big win. Uh, I think it's going to be great racing both in France and, and in Belgium. I'm just, 
I'm just happy that uh, racing is continuing. I mean, I was talking to the Flanders Classics uh, CEO today. He said green light for Ohm Loop, green light for the Spring Classics in Belgium, barring some disastrous turn, you know, some new strain of uh, COVID that shows up and starts taking everybody out again. But right now, things are, things are looking pretty good. We haven't had the Belgian strain yet. We haven't had the Belgian strain yet. Um, I, I love these races. I love the Het Nusblad course, the old Flanders course. It just brings back so many good memories of like, you know, the Bosberg and the Muir. And like, I just I, I cannot wait to watch these races. So racing is back, everyone. We have lots to talk about and we will continue keeping you informed with all the races, analysis and takes on villainews.com. Uh, for James Start and Andrew Hood, it's Fred Dreyer. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to hear from Kiel Rain and now from UAE Tour. The Spring Classics are back and Flow Bikes has you covered. Watch Omloop Pet Newsblad, Ghent Wevelgem, the Tour of Flanders, Amstel Gold, and more live and on demand in the US, Canada, and Australia. Plus, go inside the race with athlete interviews, in-depth course previews, expert analysis, and other exclusive content the cobbles are calling, so don't miss out. Subscribe now at flowbikes.com slash velonews. That's F-L-O bikes.com forward slash velonews. Let's get back to the podcast. Okay, uh, now joining us from the UAE tour, it is Kiel Reinen, our official uh, UAE tour correspondent. Um, Kiel, thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I suppose I should have asked beforehand if this is editable or if I'm, I'm just going to be held accountable for whatever I say. Oh, this is the Bella News podcast. There's no judgment. We just assume that all of our guests are speaking freely and that, um, you know, just the, the free-flowing nature of the podcast excuses any... Um, you know, is sensitive information that you may have divulged. This this UAE tour is a is a real favorite of both yours and mine for its um, wacky theme song music to the weird malls that uh, the races tend to finish and start at. And I want to get to uh, what the 2021 edition is like. Um, before that, though, we just got news that uh, like Alpicine Phoenix has left the race uh, with Matthew Vanderpool because of a potential um, COVID outbreak in their staff, which of course brings back bad memories from last year when the UAE tour was sort of the race patient zero for COVID uh, creeping into the Peloton. I guess I'm curious from your end right now, what's sort of the mood like around the team and the staff? Are you guys monitoring this story? What's sort of the feel and the vibe at the race right now with that? Yeah, I only uh, found out myself just at the end of the, the time trial there in the parking lot. Um, that they weren't going to be participating. And like you said, this race is kind of um, one of the enjoyable aspects is just the quirkiness, uh, you know, how different it is. And there's, there's certainly a mood shift uh, when, you know, you're, you're brought back to reality and, and remember that, Hey, we're still in the middle of a, a global pandemic here. And uh, it's, I think that, you know, people hear that and they're, they're reminded that, you know, we do need to take it seriously and, um, and, but also that that's part of our responsibility. You know, we came here knowing that that's a, a potential outcome. Um, and we're as prepared to take, you know, the necessary precautions as we can be. Uh, and I think that it's important that we, we understand that it's, it's sort of part of the agreement we have coming here. Yeah. I mean, how's the difference in the mood this year with a COVID news compared to last year when you, know, you were at this race? All of a sudden, there's COVID in the race and like the whole thing shuts down. How, how would you describe the difference in the reaction last year to compare to where it is this year? I think you can draw parallels to the reaction is, you know, 
in society as a whole, we, we were a lot more panicked last year because there's a lot more unknowns. Uh, we are in a much different situation now in terms of what we know about the COVID in general and, and how to, you know, react to positive cases. So there's a, you know, there's still an element of mystery because you don't know when it's going to crop up or, or who it's going to show up in, but there's at least a sort of, uh, I would say standard that's been set and, and we know what to expect in the case, in the event of a positive. Yeah. I mean, you know, now you have an entire year of going to races and having swab tests and, you know, uh, if, if, someone is deemed to be unfit, they're taken out, they do a contract trace, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like, like you said, not like last year where it's like, oh my God, shot everyone down, lock them in their hotel rooms. I mean, we had dispatches from our reporter. It was like day six locked in his hotel room eating bad food. Yeah. I mean, we were flying by the seat of our pants last year, hundred percent. I mean, not just us, you know, the officials, everyone in charge, we were all sort of guessing in the dark. And I think, you know, now last night was my third COVID test in the last five days. So, we, you know, we have availability of, of testing and we have protocols in place in the event of, of a positive. So there's, there's definitely, um, we, we can come into the race with more, um, assurance about what might happen, but it's, it's still a little bit of, you know, Russian roulette. Hey, so one of the reasons why I appreciated UAE Tour was the fact that um, access to the riders was always really good. As a journalist, you could go to this race and, you know, every, there's no team buses. Everyone's just kind of hanging out. There's not a crush of fans and you can talk to um, riders pretty freely. This year with COVID, there's no journalists. You know, the uh, race size and the entourage has been greatly reduced. I mean, how does it feel this year to be at the stages and at the race without without journalists, without many fans, without much of a race entourage? What's the biggest difference that you feel? I think this race has certainly always brought back fond memories for me about, um, you know, when I raced collegiate um, races on the road, riding out of a van, you know, changing all together in a parking lot. Some of that just takes me back to uh, simpler times. And it's certainly enjoyable because of that. Uh, It's, it's not a race that's known for overwhelming crowds normally. And so the, the absence of those crowds, I think is, you don't feel it as, as much as you might at, you know, a grand tour that said, you know, we've been racing for quite a while now with limited interactions, both journalists and, and fans. And it's a bummer. I think it's a bummer for fans. I think it's a bummer for us. You know, we, we feed off of the energy that, that people bring to the races. And so I, I really, do miss that that aspect um of being at the races and i i hope that you know we'll get to a point soon where we can see the return of of some normalcy but i i think we all also understand that patience is required and there's uh an understanding that you know we all have to to play ball as much as we can to to make it all work mm-hmm. so we are talking to you after stage two the individual time trial and um yesterday on sunday was the opening stage, Matthew Vanderpool won. And um, what really stood out to me was, you know, we had these great, beautiful overhead shots of the Peloton once these cross and headwinds hit and the whole thing splintered into these echelons across the road, which we see in desert racing a lot. But stage one looked particularly brutal. You know, take us inside the moment when the Peloton starts to shatter into these echelons. What's it like? What, like as a team, what, um, what do you do to try and get your 
leaders into the you know the the front echelon and and what what's it like when the thing just starts to shatter yeah i think you know the those sort of the inhospitable terrain surrounding the race makes for a really amazing dramatic backdrop to that that footage which again like you said is one of the appealing things about this race it's it's just incredibly unique and yesterday definitely reminded me of racing in qatar uh, where crosswinds were a, a constant part of the the race, and here I've I've only experienced winds like that um, once in uh, the Dubai Tour, and then uh, one other stage in UAE, or excuse me, in um, the Abu Dhabi Tour. So it's it's much more rare here to have winds like that. I think we we certainly weren't expecting the winds to be that strong. You know, in the team meeting the night before. The prediction was for some wind, but but not anything dramatic. And obviously, when we got to the, the start line, it was very apparent that it was not going to be a straightforward start. And the the neutral was about a hundred meters uh, from the staging area, and we we all went up on the podium and you know waved our hellos uh, to the you know solitary camera, and then lined up at the start. And the start order was essentially the order that we had to do the presentation in. So there wasn't much hope for the teams that came late in the, the presentation at that, that early, um, neutralization start. And we, we turned the left hand corner right at the zero K and immediately the peloton split into three groups. So it was, it was chaos from the start. And there were definitely some teams that, you know, had an advantage being up towards the front, uh, at staging, but it did all come back together and, I think one of the other riders who I won't name, uh, he's an, an elder statesman though. <laughs> he, he said it was the hardest 10 minutes of his career, uh, just because it was so abrupt, you know, it was first race back and the, the first 10 minutes was just as hard as we could go. And there was a, a town, I think around 50 K into the stage where things were more protected. And so, after everything came back together, it, it stayed calm through there. And then there was a intermediate sprint 65 K into the stage. And we knew that there would be a battle for it because there was no breakaway. And, uh, after the lead out, there were gaps in the Peloton and a couple of riders in the front noticed, thought they'd capitalize on it. And as soon as they started riding, you know, I was screaming on the radio, they're going, they're going. And at that point, you you have two choices you either get in line and start rotating and and pray that you you know have the power to stay in the group or you immediately start looking for one of your leaders and drop back go get them and and do one last ditch effort to get them up to that front group and it happened that uh i was next to um Emil's and mateo at the time and so it seemed like a pretty good situation for us you know we had a good chunk of our lead out train and our sprinter. Uh, so we weren't going to not stay in that group. Um, and once things sort of hashed out, you know, there's, there's the group splinter and there's always a few people dangling on the back who can't get in the rotation and eventually, you know, pop because they get forced out. So when things had actually settled, um, we had lost our, our main sprinter, but had Emil's as a backup sprinter and myself. And then, um, one of our GC riders, um, Matias, who's young and, and still, um, learning, but, uh, super strong and, and on good form. And so 
for us, it, you know, there's, there's always an, you know, perfect situation and the ideal scenario. And then there's the pretty good scenario. And, and for us, it was a pretty good scenario. So we, um, decided to roll with it and there was plenty of horsepower in that group. So, uh, it was just a question of how motivated the teams were behind and how many of them had missed out. And it was, it was a big, big battle. I mean, there were, there were plenty of teams that, that did miss out and there were plenty of teams that were super happy with the situation up front. So we, we basically just rode flat out for, uh, two hours and the gap hovered between, you know, one minute and two minutes for that entire time. And then by the time we hit the circuits, the, the chase sort of petered out behind and then the gap ballooned and they gave up and, um, we, we didn't roll with the, the same sort of veracity that we had the previous two hours, but we didn't really slow down a ton either. And I was very surprised at how exhausted most of that group was. There were some attacks in the final and my job was to try and kind of <clears throat> sew things back up together so that Emils could sprint. And, uh, I, I was, I was just very surprised at how exhausted everybody was, myself included. Yeah. I mean, we looked at some of the, um, footage to come out of it and some of the post-race interviews and people were just super gassed. You know, I'm always curious when, you know, the echelons get that extreme where it's basically horizontal across the road. You know, we don't see that even every year, you know, you see that, okay, in some Belgian races, some North Sea races, and then the desert races every now and again. But it's not like a, you know, it's not something that you can guarantee is going to happen all the time. And I'm curious if riding in formations like that, I mean, is it just second nature? You like pop into it, you're like, oh, yeah, here's where I need to be. Or does it take some like remembering and getting used to of like, what the lineup is, and even what the effort feels like? I mean, it's just, is this just something like you've done it so many times, you just pop it into gear or, do, or those first, you know, 10, 15 minutes, is it like, oh, oh yeah, this is what that feels like. Yeah, I think that it really depends on the rider. It, it's it, for some people, it's very uncomfortable and you, you have to kind of constantly remind them about best practices. And, and then for other riders, it, it just comes really naturally. There's, uh, you know, an element of finesse, certainly, especially when the wind gets gusty and you see, the riders shift quickly across the road. It's really easy to overlap wheels and crash that way. Uh, so always making sure that you're, you're tight on the person in front of you, but you have enough wiggle room to maneuver in case that happens. Um, there's a lot of teamwork involved too, because, you know, the easiest way to reduce that group is by, you know, pouring on the gas and, and only allowing, um, you know, people you want into the line to rotate. So, even as hard as it is to pull through in those situations, it's even harder to sit on the back. And so if, if riders don't want you there and they don't let you into the line, you can find yourself in trouble really quickly. And I think at one point, you know, we were 27 riders and we ended up maybe 23. I, I think we lost, you know, three, four or five guys um, just because of that, especially when the road narrows just a little bit, you go from a highway to a, a two lane road, there's just not enough room for everybody. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times if the group isn't just the right size, you'll have riders trying to, to sit on or um, change tactics. And the, the group we had yesterday uh, worked really well together all, all the way to the end um, until, you know, maybe 5k to go. And so I think, everyone's interests were more or less aligned. There were also a lot of really experienced crosswind riders in that group. So it was, it was smooth, um, certainly smoother than, than it could have been if it was a different set of guys. And what, 
what's the value that, you know, efforts like this, experiences like this early in the season at this time of year bring to you as you build towards, you know, spring classics? You have Gent Wevelgum, Flanders, Roubaix coming up here in another couple months. And like, what is the role that like getting sand blown down your throat in crosswinds at the UAE <laughs> plays in the buildup for that block? Yeah, besides scarred lungs, uh, I think the most valuable thing that you, you gain from races like that is you, you cannot simulate that in in training. You know, I can simulate a twenty minute long climb. I can I can simulate uh, a lead out, but crosswind racing is is just nearly impossible to to try and simulate in in training. It's just so highly variable. I mean the the not just the power but you know the heart rate um profile is it looks like a you know sawtooth blade it's just impossible to do that on your own oh but better you than me again when i saw that uh, overhead shot from yesterday it was like that looks extremely uh painful well keel i really appreciate you uh calling in and of course we would be remiss to um talk about the uae tour and not talk about its glorious theme song which if memory serves me correctly from my last time there was 2019 was uae tour chasing sun across the sea to gloria and this is like beaten into played loudly uh, every start and finish line uh for seven days in a row for you correct it is somewhere deep in my subconscious and uh almost more comically it's it is actually a dubai tour yeah chasing sun <laughs> So the it's it's the original theme song from uh, the tour of Dubai that has been uh, repurposed now for the UAE tour. But uh, you know the quirkiness is is what makes this a unique fun experience. So I'll I'll take the the odd song here and there to keep it lighthearted. <laughs> yeah, listeners, I think we're gonna have to play a clip from that uh, as we bid. Uh... Keel adieu. Keel Rainin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We wish you the best of luck uh, through the remainder of the UAE tour. Yeah, thanks for having me. If uh, you don't hear from me, send someone out in the desert to look for me. Yeah.